morning to each of you. It's good to see you gathered together today, braving the elements, the San Diego elements that is, to come and to worship in the house of God on this Lord's Day. Uh, Today we will be taking a break from our normal expositions in the Gospel of Mark. As most of you know, and and those visiting, if you don't know, we do normally preach through books of the Bible, um, where the elders and the leaders decided it would be wise to take up a couple of topical issues uh, for the next couple of weeks, and then we will uh, finish our journey in the Gospel of Mark. And particularly as we close out yet another year, for me, at least, it is a time, and Steve alluded to this as he was leading, it's a time in which it should cause for some serious, sober reflection if we profess to be in Christ, what have I done, how have I been useful in the kingdom of God this past year? How have I grown spiritually? What new, thrilling doctrinal truths do I now understand that I did not understand before? Uh, what friendships have I built? What, what, what spiritual impact have I had on others? Or am I an island unto myself, just kind of existing? And so it's, it's, a, it's a good time to reflect on these things, a time of reflection, evaluating ourselves spiritually, considering and confessing all too readily that we have not always been faithful to our God, but yet declaring boldly that He always is faithful to us as His children. But then economically as well, we hear it's been all over the news, this fiscal cliff that's supposed to happen in, uh, I don't know, a couple days, I guess. And it's, there's families, that it's, it's affecting them economically. In fact, the Bible speaks much about money, and the principles of biblical stewardship are all over the Word of God, from very early on in Genesis, all the way through the entirety of the Word of God. And also included in that is the danger of loving money. And see, even Christians can fall into this, to where they want to cling and to hold on to what they have. I submit to you how you handle your material wealth as a barometer to your spiritual health. Okay, How you handle your material wealth is likely some barometer, some measurement, some gauge of how your spiritual health is doing. Deuteronomy 8 um, says, But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to make wealth. And so whatever we have, whatever resources we have, we know ultimately that that comes from God. And we must never make our security, take our security in money or in the resources that we have, but rather our great concern should be wise stewards of what the Lord has provided for us. And there are many good examples in this congregation of how uh, you have made, you've been a wise steward and the kingdom of God has been furthered. So I would ask you to turn to 1 Timothy 6, and um, we haven't been in this in some time, and that's why I asked that that would be our New Testament reading. I'm going to read again at this point, just verses 6 to 10 one more time for us. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those 
who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish, harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a griefs. Let us pray once again. Our Father, we do ask that You would give us understanding into this text this day. Lord, each of us, no doubt here, can see areas of discontent in our lives. And Lord, we long to be those that are contented in You and all of the riches that You have bestowed upon us in Christ. Oh Lord, we are the richest people in the world no matter what economic class we might be in because we are those who have been born again and are the children of the living God. Heirs according to the promise. And so Lord, help us to remove cares and distractions that we might learn from these things, that we might be warned of that contrast of uh, being very careful not to long and have an inordinate longing after riches. Be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing that probably should be said by way of continuing introduction is that material wealth is not necessarily a gauge of God's blessings in your life. There are some that get by on a very shoestring budget, we might call it, very little financial resources, and yet they are able to use that for the glory of God. They live much more simply, but God blesses them, and they are no less because of that. Um, in the seven churches in Revelation, Christ says to the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. So in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of martyrdom, in that greater, broader context, uh, we are told that really they are rich. We must be a people that are those that are willing to submit to God's plan should He choose to remove whatever creature comforts we may have in our life. And sometimes that might be a spouse. Sometimes that might be having your, your house burned down to the ground, as that's happened to somebody in this congregation in the past. But we submit ourselves to God's plan, seeing what His greater purposes are for us. Job said it well when he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, it's not about what you have, or what's been taken away, or whatever. It's the Lord is to be blessed no matter what. So there's nothing inherently wrong with money. Like a gun, money can be used for good or evil purposes. So the issue is not money per se, but your attitude towards it. Really what we're talking about is the sin of greed and covetousness. So, here we are today, ending 2012, the year of our Lord, entering 2013, uh, very soon in a matter of hours really. And, and, the, and the whole world is in an economic crisis. There's worries of recessions. There's worries of layoffs. There's worries of more jobs going overseas. There, there's all of these things, and these are real things. There's worries about the GDP growing slower than what we had hoped. There's, there's worries about when will we run out of money for all the entitlements of which about a third of America is now receiving some type of entitlement. And, and how did we get here? How did, it, how did it get to this place? Well, largely by unprecedented greed and covetousness. Another fact that is that shouldn't be in the Christian home, is, according to my conviction, is that 
the average Christian family most, most often lives beyond their means. So you make this much per month, right? Or per year, or whatever. That's how much you should spend, or less. <laughs> if you keep it, well, our federal government's a good example of this, right? We take in this much, but yet we're spending this much. And guess what? That can't go on forever, right? And so too in individual families. What motivates, we'll just say, pick on Americans for now, what motivates Americans to live beyond their means? It's greed, it's covetousness. I've got to have the 55 inches and enough. I need the 75 inch LCD or whatever the newest TV is or, or whatever. It, it's, it's being discontent with what God has provided and a longing to have something more. Discontent always wants something more and it always thinks about what it does not have rather than turn that on its head, rejoicing in what God has given you and giving thanks to Him for that. We who have been saved have our contentment ultimately in Christ. The, the, the things and the, the couches and the, the whatever are, are things are just things that hopefully aid us to glorify Christ and to exalt Him. They're not a measure of our happiness. If your happiness gauge is regulated by when you wake up and you look at how new your furniture is or how clean the carpet is, you're, you're, you're basing your happiness on the wrong thing. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you're a child of God. You have riches that are immeasurable. You have riches that the world, apart from repentance, will never enjoy. Now what causes Paul to launch into this little section here? <clears throat> Largely, the letter is written to the church. He's writing to Timothy uh, as he is there tending to things in the city of Ephesus. False teachers are there from the very beginning of chapter 1 to the end. Verses 3 to 5 of chapter 6 talks about these, as I call them, greedy heretics because they're advocating a different doctrine for the sake of personal gain. And we don't have to look far today to see that example taking place um, in our world as well. So that's the context. And so, what he says here, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So he's taking that, he's drawing a contrast from the greedy heretics to the biblical Christian. A godly man is not concerned about becoming rich because he has all the riches in Christ. And, and, and a lot of this is you have to maintain the pilgrim mentality of going through this world. It's not about seeing how much you can accumulate until you die. Because you know not when you die. So, I've divided the text into three sections here. Uh, three simple points. The key to contentment, I think Paul gives that in the first three verses. Verses 6-8. to eight, That long, longing to get rich will ruin and destroy you. And then lastly... We must treasure Christ above all things. Treasuring Christ is the key. That's the punchline to true contentment. And I've already alluded to that uh, several times. First of all, the key to contentment. Have you experienced the great gain of godliness? Godliness is not just gain. Notice what he says. It's great gain. Why? Because it is Christ-likeness. It, 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 is, it is being as Christ is. Being freed from sin. Being freed from a desire for material wealth. Our godliness is profitable. 
Listen to John Calvin. He says, It is sufficiently great gain to us because though because through it we become not only heirs of the world, but are enabled to enjoy Christ and all of His riches. See, godliness enables you to fully enjoy all the benefits that Christ is to us. And that's really another sermon. But So this is a life of true devotion to God, where now we are concerned for the purposes of God, not the purposes of Kurt, for the glory and exaltation of Christ, not my puny little desires, and, and these types of things. And then the common good of the church, that's our great concern. Paul said it well, if you just look on the next page back in chapter 4 and verse 8, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds the promise of the present life and also to the life to come. I like how he he emphasizes that eschatological hope that we have. The Net translation, New English translation, translates this verse. Now, godliness combined with contentment brings great profit. And so we're to have an eternal perspective on what we have. Well, what is contentment? Maybe we should define that. Maybe I should have defined that early, earlier. Uh, the technical definition is self-sufficiency in the sense of independence, sufficiency. But in an external state, it's having what is adequate sufficient and competent having get this enough of everything in fact when paul um, in second corinthians 9 i'll just read it that chapters 8 and 9 are great chapters on money and giving and giving sacrificially uh, he says in verse 7 each one must do what he has purposed in his heart not grudgingly or under compulsion for god loves a cheerful giver now listen to what he says and god is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. The idea there is we have sufficiency. We have what we need. And here the word in particular means it's a state of being content with one's circumstances. He would write earlier in Second Corinthians, not that we're adequate in and of ourselves, as though to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is with or from God. As Christians, our sufficiency comes from God, and we find our satisfaction in Him and in Him alone. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote an excellent book, most of you are aware of it, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He says this, he says it's a work of the Spirit indoors. Not from external circumstances. He goes on, I find sufficiency of satisfaction in my own heart through the grace of Christ that is in me. You see where true contentment comes from? It's through the grace of Christ which is present in me. His Spirit dwelling in me. It's a work that takes place on the inside. It's not about external circumstances. So the born and dead Christian is not like that fool in, in Luke 12 that when his barns got full, what did he say? I'll, I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns, right? And if you're familiar with that passage, the warning goes on, you fool, this night your soul may be required of you. <clears throat> Paul speaks in Philippians chapter 4 about contentment. 
He says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. The idea that this doesn't come naturally for the Christian. When you're born again, you're regenerated, you're transformed, and you're a new creature in Christ. It's not as though this just comes whiz-bang that you're automatically content in every circumstance. Paul learned it. And he learned it very hard. He knew how to get by without. He knew how to get by with, with plenty. And he learned to be content through it all. Some practical ways to remember that God owns everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And, and, and to, well, however much, however little we have, to cultivate a thankful heart. That it is He who has provided for you. It is He who has given this to you. Learn to know the difference between a need and a want. <laughs> right? There's a lot of things we have with, well, I would like to have this someday, this day, this day. And then what do we actually need in this life? Spend less than your income. Learn the joy of sharing with others, sharing with the poor, a tithing to the church, giving away your money and your resources. We read in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. To the degree that you delight yourself in the Lord is to the degree that you will, be, you will want to be like the Lord and that is to be a blessing to others. Well, Paul says in verse 7 here, and, and this, is, this should be obvious, but it needs to be mentioned. Uh, he says, for you have brought nothing into the world and so we can take nothing out of it either. You can't take your wealth with you when you die. And, and the, in, the, in the original Greek, it's very, very emphatic. The negatives are put towards the, the, the front here that you can't, you've brought nothing into and you will be taking nothing out of it. What have you brought into this world? <laughs> nothing. Your birthday suit, as some would call it, right? Nothing. You haven't brought nothing into this world. Job said it, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. Let me illustrate it like this. Suppose a man went to an uh, art museum in London and went through a turnstile. You know, that's just enough room for him to get through. He had to hold his hands up. He goes through the turnstile and, and he goes through the museum there and he begins taking classic pieces of art off the walls and putting them under his arms. He continues walking about and you, you come up to him and you say, well, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm becoming an art collector. <laughs> but they're not really yours, you say. <laughs> and besides that, they'll never let you out of here with those. You have to come in just like you went, or you'll have to go out just like you came in. And he answers again, Sure, they're mine. I have them under my arm. People see me as an important dealer in the hallways. And I don't bother myself with thoughts about leaving. Don't ruin my fun. We would call this man a fool, right? We call this man, he's so far from reality. But isn't that essentially what it is? What is a miserly... We used to do retirement and re nursing home ministry years ago. And, and I can tell you how many people I met that in their frailty, probably with months to live, tenaciously holding on to what they have, and sometimes very vast amounts. Where are you? you can't take that anywhere. Don't you get that? You've got to begin to let go. It's remarkable how easy we can lose the pilgrim mentality. You see, this world is not your home. <laughs> this, this, this life is short. It's a vapor. 
It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. The psalmist in Psalm 49 states it rather clearly. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away, and his glory will not descend after him. It's a grievous thing. I I suppose some people make funeral plans with U-Haul trailers following the hearse, you know, that their possessions are going to go with them somewhere. That's what folly. We need to learn to loosen our grip on what we have. It is all God's. Well, verse 8. Let's read it again. Paul, continuing, he says, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Very simple, plain language. Uh, We need to be content with God's sovereign care and provision for our needs. Whatever food that may look like, it might be beans and rice, it may be something else, but whatever He has provided, that we are content with what He's provided. And this word covering can mean clothing, it can also mean shelter. Let's just sum it up like this. If we have our basic needs being met, right? If, If we have our basic needs being met, we have more than enough. You children, maybe your siblings received a, a particular gift or a video game or something that you didn't receive at Christmas time, and, and you begin to think, oh, you know, envy, envy wants that, you know, why didn't I get that, and all of that, away with such things. We need to remember that each of us here are rich by the world's standards. If you have the blessing of not working 12 hours a day, six days a week, just to feed your family, okay, you are rich. And you need to understand that and to see that. The Bible doesn't teach some vow of poverty. Um, Paul says, with these we shall be content. And, and it, this is a different word than the, the word in verse 6. This means to just be, it's passive to be satisfied and content with what God has provided. That is, God provides for us and we are completely content and satisfied with that. The Lord's Prayer. We say, this day, give us this day our daily bread. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, we pray of God's free gift that we may have a competent portion of the good things in this life. So, the goal of your life should be to glorify God with what you have. Start putting more emphasis on that in your life. you know, I'm not disregarding the fact that we as men have a responsibility to provide for our families, to save for the future, prudence, all of those things. No one's, no one's saying anything against that. But the point is, is sometimes there can be such an enormous amount of time about how can I get more money rather than how can I glorify God with what I have? How can I be a blessing to others with what I have? Quoting uh, Jeremiah Burroughs once again, a man who has learned the art of contentment is the most contented in any low condition that he may have in this world. Notice he's saying that he's learned. It, it is, there's a process of learning. This isn't automatic. And then he says, and yet he cannot be satisfied with all the enjoyment of the world. See, learning biblical contentment is learning to find your satisfaction and your peace with Christ. The world, of course, is deceived into thinking that the more things I acquire, then I'll be more satisfied, I'll be more content. Maybe you've thought that way. That's folly. 
I, I could give a, I've cut out several of them, Look, example after example after example of men when they become rich, it doesn't help them in the end. J.D. Rockefeller said, I made my millions and they have brought me no happiness. Study these people that waste their money on the lottery tickets and then some of them end up winning. <laughs> but study the stories that are again and again and again that you hear of two years after the winnings, one year after the winnings, sometimes one month after the winnings because all their friends are coming and landing in line and they, they make more enemies than they ever do friends because they say, no, 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 I'm not sharing. You know, it's, it's just ridiculous. Money does not bring happiness. Here's a mathematics lesson that you won't find in Saxon math, uh, you homeschool children, but listen to this. Contentment does not come from adding to your circumstances or adding to your possessions. Contentment comes from subtracting from your desires. Did you catch that? Contentment's not adding to. It's not possessions and all of these kinds of things. It's subtracting from our desires. And we've talked recently quite a bit about this. Our heart is deceitful. Our heart thinks it wants to run after here, run after there. We're dumb sheep. We're prone to wonder. Subtract from your desires and you'll find contentment. We subtract from our desires for inordinate things. It's, it's banking all of your hope on the faithfulness and on the promises of God. Even in the United States of America, even the direction our country has gone, you can still pull out a coin from your pocket and see what? In God we trust. The U.S. Model, motto is actually sound theology. Well, secondly, having considered something of the key to contentment uh, so far, let's look at verses 9 and 10. The inordinate pursuit of riches will ruin and destroy you. Paul here gives a drastic negative opposite example. And this is profound. Some of the language here is, 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 is very strong. And by the way, Paul is not saying that earning an income and providing is, is wrong. I've already alluded to that. What is condemned here is the consuming desire to be rich. Financial resources should be used rightly for the glory of God. So verse 9, don't live with covetous desires. Look what he says. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare of many foolish and harmful desires. Let's stop there. Now the context here is this, these greedy contexts, right? That's the, the previous context. And then contentment. And now he's drawing an allusion back to those whose consuming desire is to be rich. It's all that the heretics are in it for the money. And yet he says this and he writes this and it applies to the whole church and to us as well. You see, discontent will lead to greed. It will lead to envy. As you continue to just be dissatisfied, you begin to, in your mind, begin to think about things and how you can change your external circumstances. It can be to be, begin to affect how you help others. Maybe a family member that is in need and they've come, they've come for financial help in the past. Now, there's, there's stewardship issues. You don't, you, don't, you don't want to be an enabler to constantly always help, but are you quick and are you ready to actually help those in need? 
and the support of the local church. If you're a member here, if you're visiting, we don't expect you to give, but if you're a member, we do expect you to honor the Lord in that way and supporting the local church so the work of the gospel can go forward. So he says here, those who want to get rich, that's kind of like the main heading. Think about that. And then it kind of structures down. Uh, And he says those who want to get rich fall into. Now, each of these words are are packed full of meaning and I'm going to be elaborating on them. When he says fall into, okay, and we're not even saying falling into what, it is like as though I was getting down from here and I tripped and I fell onto the floor. Or I tripped and I fell into a pit. Or we had a bonfire, a men's outing the other night. And if somebody, and there were tripping hazards there and it was dark. But uh, if somebody was to trip into the bonfire, that's the idea here. Is those who want to get rich, they, they stumble and they fall into something. And Paul's going to tell us what that is. It's really three things that then leads to another progression, okay? So those who want to get rich, first of all, they fall. They stumble. They experience something suddenly. They're beset by circumstances. It's the same word that's used of the man who the Samaritan man comes and helps. The man who fell into the hands of robbers. It's the same word that's used in Hebrews 10.31. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's something that happens suddenly, unexpectedly, with disastrous results. Beware of being discontent, being a grumbler, being a complainer. Uh, One of my sons read 1 Corinthians 10 today. And remember, Israel is warned about their grumbling and their idolatry. And and Paul uses that as a test case, as an example. He says these things happen for examples to us of how not to live. And so discontent and grumbling ought not to be part of our lives. Why is it that it is so easy to fall into that folly? When you're grumbling, do you realize it's like this? Whether it's a red light, whether it's a layoff from the job, whether it's whatever, first of all, you are denying the sovereignty of God, the providence of God in your life, if you're a Christian, His loving care and giving you exactly what you need, and it's as though you say, no, 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 and you start erasing that page in your, your day timer or whatever, you say, no, 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 God, that's, no, that's not what I want. Let me give you the plan, what I want. I want this and this. And what folly that you're going to pre- prepare or presume and, and, and to give to God some other plan for your life as though you could govern the world. Well, as I said, this word fall means drastically, suddenly beset with something. And, and, and Paul tells us there's three things that are linked here. Fall into temptation, a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires. Are you given to covetous lust? Well, this is what happens after you fall into that. First, the word temptation just means to be tested, to be tempted. The second word is it can be, it's literally a trap or a snare, but it figuratively it means that which causes one to be suddenly endangered or unexpectedly brought under the control of a hostile force, trap or snare. Now, 
we have some people visiting from Virginia. I don't know if they have rabbits back there. I'm assuming so. But where we used to play and growing up, they're not around here in the concrete jungle, but you know, you go to the woods and there's like rabbits or squirrels and you, you get a box and you get a stick with a rope on it and you put a trail of food and you're kind of hiding over here and you wait for it to go in there and boom, you pull it. Boom, he's trapped, right? He's underneath that crate. You've caught your prey. And that's the intensity. That's the force of the word here. They fall into temptation and to a snare. Suddenly ensnared. Suddenly gripped. Think of a bear trap, as it were. Maybe that would communicate the force of it a little bit more. And then the third thing Paul says is, is foolish and harmful desires. That is, stuff that is inordinate. Stuff that is unbecoming for the Christian. So you see the progression here. But those, you be content, but those, and it may include some of you, right? those who want to get rich, they fall, they stumble, they've lost their, their, their footing, they're caught in a stare, and now there's these harmful desires that come upon them. One man said, gold is like seawater. The more one drinks of it, the thirstier he becomes. Substitute the word riches in there. Oftentimes, those who have made their millions, then the next target is billions. (laughs) The next target is whatever. Uh, The thirstier they become. Foolish and harmful desires. For oftentimes, centered around pride and self, right? Um, That... I might be recognized when I give the $50 million gift to the children's hospital and my name's placard on the wall, right? And I'm glad God's common grace, He moves on some people to do some of those kinds of things. But at the root, oftentimes, it's self, popularity. Um, It might be ease. It might be sloth. Oh, I've made my million. I don't have to work for the next 40 years of my life. Friends, God's created you to work. Work's not a result of the fall. Work was present before the fall. Work is not as pleasant as it was originally before the fall. But God has wired you to be about doing something and doing all ultimately for His glory. The desire to get rich has been the cause of numerous frauds and lies and thefts and wars and murders. Everything, just look at the last hundred years of movies and TV shows and all of that, anything mystery related or Alfred Hitchcock, there's usually a life insurance policy that, you know, that the poison comes so that, you know, there's money. Money is involved in a lot of evil. It really is. And then the result here, look at the rest of the text harmful desires which plunge. Plunge men into ruin and destruction. The result of falling is that ultimately they are plunged. Literally, it means to, it would be related to the word baptizo. We just had a baptism a couple weeks ago. To be submerged into the water, but figuratively, it speaks of someone to experience disastrous consequences plunged in and exposed to. And what are they plunged into? Paul just keeps adding these words, ruin and destruction. Ruin and destruction. Ruin is used four times in the New Testament. The word for destruction, the King James uses for perdition. 
uh, oftentimes, the idea is to incur loss and ultimately the ultimate loss of body and soul. Very strong words. A picture of total devastation over longing to be rich. This progression that can take place here. So instead of the gain in which they were seeking in verse 5, remember, at the end of it it says, who suppose godliness is a means of gain, Yes and amen, but instead of that, they've longed after riches instead, and now they have incurred such devastating loss. We don't have time to go there, but Acts 8, I would encourage you to read this afternoon where you have Simon the sorcerer who there wanted some of these uh, powers so that whoever he lays his hands on, right? And what does Peter say to him? May your silver and your gold perish with you. This may be a warning to some of you here today. Beware of being preoccupied with riches. There are some studies done that that people think about money 50% of their waking time. Now, I don't know. I I guess I don't agree with that, but maybe that's true for some. Maybe that's an average. I don't know. But if you think about it, it's, well, how to get it, how to save it, how to make it, how to invest it, how to buy food. You know, it, it is kind of related to a lot of what we do. But to be preoccupied with this is a dreadful thing. Again, there's nothing... Well, the dreadful progression is just amazing. Desiring the wrong thing, in the midst of desiring, losing your footing, next you are ensnared, and then the sinful cravings plunge you into ruin and destruction. By way of brief application, we should examine ourselves. Think of this past week. What is it that you've spent your time on? What has been your pursuits this past week? What, what consumes your life? What, what's, what's, what's your thought life filled with as you would commute to work or in the course of a normal week? Perhaps many people had days off this week. What consumes your thought life? Why do you do what you do? What, what do you spend your money on? And I submit to you that when the, check, um, when the credit card statement comes or the checkbook register, Just go through that and look, and you'll see what's really important to you. See what you're investing in. And then in verse 10, the love of money leads to many other evils. Um, The love of money is the root of all sorts, N-A-S, all kinds of evil in other translations. King James has it wrong when they leave that out. It's just of all evil. Um, but it's the idea of all kinds of evil. It could come from that root of loving money. <clears throat> examples of Nathan confronting David. Remember, he gives him that parable of the poor man with the lamb who is his pet, rich man who owned many sheep and goes to slay the, the, the one sheep even though he owns plenty. Judas himself was betrayed for 30, or betrays our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Um, the idea... Here where it says, in some by longing for it, is the same word used of those who long after the office of elder pastor in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1. And what happens to these? Love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have what? As though Paul hasn't already told us enough about those who want to get rich, as though the force of the words in each one of them of falling and being ensnared and, and then being plunged down into ruin and destruction is not enough. 
Paul's not done yet. He wants to put an explanation point on his point, as it were. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have what? Wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Wandering away from the faith is something that Paul's already alluded to just back in chapter 4 and verse 1. He's alluded to it with the false teachers at the beginning of 1, the end of 2, chapter 4, chapter 6. But listen, in four one, the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Another dreadful picture of apostasy. Having so much light and yet not truly being converted and showing yourself to be an apostate. But the second thing he says is even more vivid. As though wandering away from the faith is not enough, he says, and pierced themselves with many griefs. The, the word has the idea of, of, of being impaled. Have you ever been to maybe in Hawaii or, or somewhere where they've actually roasted a pig on a spit? You know, there's some, okay? You know, just picture a four foot metal shaft driven through the animal of a pig and slowly on a rotisserie. And that's the idea. It's to be completely impaled, to be put on a spit. It's like a pig slowly roasted over a fire and skewered. And, and, and that's what Paul says these do. These who have gone their own way and who have gone after riches is that they throw themselves, to be, their very souls, to be skewered over an open fire. That is intense grief. And you think of grief, this mental distress that would come. Psalm 32, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Of course, the ultimate grief is what? If you've wandered away from the faith and you've thrown yourself on the skewer and the flames are licking up at you, that is a picture of judgment. That is the ultimate grief pierced themselves with many griefs. To be away from the presence of the Lord forever. And, and, and friends, God is angry with the wicked. His purity, His eyes, His, His justice, His perfection, His righteousness cannot allow sin in His presence. That is why we exalt Christ in this church. Because was it not for Him, every one of us would be destroyed in an instant. But for these who have some knowledge of truth, who, who go their own way, who long after the things of this world to satisfy them get tripped up. They're in the bear trap. They're, they can't get out. They're, they're, the harmful desires continue. And finally, they're plunged into ruin and destruction. And then they wander from the faith and pierce themselves. Some here may be just a few breaths from eternity. We, we know not how many days we have. Some may have years. Some may have months. We, we, we do not know these things, but oh, how we need to be ready for eternity. And if you're without Christ, my dear friend, you need to fly to Christ. Cling to Him. It's the mere pleasure of God alone that He is so patient with the wicked. Even some of you children here, you, you're brought up in Christian families, you're here nearly every week, and you hear the Gospel, and somehow you think, 
it, it doesn't really apply to me. And then you find yourself growing up, going to college, and then wandering away. What folly. Maybe some here have never trusted Christ. Look to Him as a wonderful Savior. As a Savior that not only is the only Savior, the only way we can be saved, but one that has died for your sins. We're moving on quickly. The key to contentment, the longing to get rich, very briefly and lastly, by way of application, treasure Christ more than earthly circumstances. Find your joy and your satisfaction in Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Rest in His perfect righteousness. What He has accomplished. When He said it is finished on the cross, Everything that needed to be done for your salvation is done, sealed, and delivered forever. Discipleship has at its root to where we glory in the cross. Not because it's my good works and what Jesus did. You know, like my works plus Jesus' work equals justification like the Roman Catholic Church might teach. Away with that rubbish. It's because of what He's done that I'm in Christ and that I'm saved. Glory in the cross. He, King Jesus, is the one who submitted Himself to go under all these discouraging circumstances. He lived a perfect life, yes, but he, 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 was, he was treated harshly. He was homeless. He wasn't born. There wasn't the red carpets rolled out as we said last week. And some of us too, we go through dark providences. And it's not like, well, okay, look to Jesus as your example in that way. Just try to you know, pull up your bootstraps a little tighter. No. It's actually to know that Jesus is walking with you because He is with you if you are in Christ. As the dark clouds of providence may swirl around, know that you are not alone. Know that they're there for a purpose. To build godly character. To give you more fortitude. To enable you to minister to others. But one thing that's been on my mind is to long for heaven all the more. Long to be with your Savior face to face, no matter what you're going through in this life. It should cause us to long for heaven, knowing that He will never leave us or forsake us. We look beyond our difficulties and our trials and our problems into the next life where we will be with Him. Paul says so in Ephesians 1.18, so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of His glory. And Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I submit to you, keep this hope before your mind's eye at all times. It, present hope, I'm sorry, future hope affects present living. And as you have that as your goal, like Pilgrim in the celestial city, when he could get to these places, like with the shepherds, and he could see the city, though there was still some journey to go, it caused him to persevere. It worked in him a greater desire and longing to get there. So too for us. Those outside of a living relationship with Jesus Christ, you have only what you have in this life to comfort you. All the toys, the little gadgets, the video games, the fluffy bed, the blankets, whatever. All, the, all, you, all you have is what is in this life. In this life, you'll learn if you're young, maybe you haven't experienced it yet, is full of troubles and trials. It doesn't matter where you live in this world. Earthly toys rust quickly. Worldliness is fleeting. It is those who love Jesus. 
It is those who truly have been transformed by Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that can then say, unto us He is precious. And and I will not let go. And I can't wait to see Him face to face. That will bring contentment. That brings contentment as you focus on what He has done. There's nothing insufficient that He has done. There's nothing lacking in what He has done for you as a child of God. Well, very quickly, two points of application and we're done. Riches can never satisfy. I've been beating that drum, I know. (laughs) I think it is a good thing to invest what resources you have wisely. I think there are physical resources that you should save for the future, provide for your family, uh, uh, promote gospel work in this world. All of those things. And, you know, it's this time of year where Time Magazine, Money Magazine, all of them will have the 10 top tips for investing in 2013. Yahoo News, you'll see it all over the place, right? I, I encourage you to make investments in the kingdom of God. If you've been truly saved by grace, if you know you deserve nothing, and yet God has given you everything, all the riches in Christ, being predestined, adopted as sons, redeemed, bought back from slavery, given the seal of the Holy Spirit. All of these riches, if those are yours, out of love and gratitude, you want to be a blessing to others. Look at what Paul says later in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17-19. to Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good and to be rich in good works and be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. You see, in God's economy, (laughs) storing up earthly treasure is actually a bad investment. It's storing up for future treasure, right? It's, it's the, goal, uh, the goal of every investor to have long-term capitalization and appreciation. And God says that being generous lays up heavenly treasure, as I just read. The rich young ruler, another example that could be cited, Jesus saw covetousness in this man's heart. And He said, you may do all of these things, and probably not, but you may do, you know, as he listed the law, I've kept the law. One thing you lack, go and give to the poor. Well, he, had, he went away mourning because he had so much. Jesus says you will have treasure in heaven. Besides financial resources, we should be good stewards in other areas of our lives. And again, this is another sermon, but I'll just mention it in passing. Uh, Ways of serving, using your spiritual gifts in the church, the use of your time, praying for one another. These are things that should be quite obvious. <clears throat> we should consider that amassing riches is, for, is not going to bring happiness. Listen to one other illustration from the 19th century. Uh, Jay Gould, he was worth $100 million when he died, which would be much, much more in today's dollars. He died in despair. He had plenty of long-term investments, but none were long-term enough. Sadly, he did not realize this until the very end of his life. 
He was not prepared for eternity, and his last words from his deathbed were, I am the most miserable devil in the world. Come to realize that he has nothing. He's, he has no hope of eternity. He, he's been a miser and all of that. Jesus says it well in the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. There's still many, many cars made by the automaker Ford, which Henry Ford founded many years ago. But after he had made his riches and was still alive, uh, still alive, he made this comment, I was happier doing mechanics work. <laughs> I was happier having the simple job, <laughs> not having to worry about all the money. One final story, a rich man committed suicide some years ago. He had $30,000 in his pocket along with a letter that said, I have discovered during my life that piles of money do not bring me happiness. I'm taking my life because I can no longer stand the solitude and boredom when I was an ordinary workman in New York, I was happy. But now that I possess millions, I am infinitely sad and prefer death. If you find yourself preoccupied with these inordinate longings, do what Paul says in verse 11. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And the final point, very quickly, treasure Christ and you will have biblical contentment in all of your circumstances. It amazes me seeing some of the poorest people in the world, the most contented people, because they have Christ. They have a church family. They may not have much. I've eaten in homes in Africa. This family just has an aroma of joy and contentment that comes from it. And, and, and how we ought to foster that. How we ought not to be so distracted with things. Pray on these things. And if you see discontentment in your heart, mortify it. Root it out. The writer of the Hebrews says, make sure that your character is free from the love of evil, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you. And I've already said it, the antidote to covetousness is generosity. Is generosity. And Paul summed that, sums that up here in verse 18. Struck those to do good and to be rich and to do good works and to be generous and ready to share. This will weaken your love for money. Seek more of Christ. Purpose this year to learn more of Christ. Whether it's studying in depth one of the Gospels, the epistles, whatever, that that is your goal. That you want to end 2013 having understood so much more of the person and work of Christ than you ever have before. And all the earthly possessions and glitter and and, and all of that will grow strangely dim. (laughs) Turn your eyes upon Jesus. That children's hymn speaks great truth. Seek more of Christ. Study, consider the incarnation, a sinless life, his death, victorious resurrection, and even all the present benefits that we have in Christ. His present intercession for us and faith. May we say with Wesley, Jesus, lover of my soul, Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in Thee I find. I hope that's your prayer today. Let us pray.
Father, we do bow before you, thanking you for these reminders from this text. Lord, I do pray that you would work contentment, a biblical contentment within our hearts. Lord, that we would be those that would not be running after the glitter of the world, but we would be those that are running after knowing more of Christ, finding our satisfaction in Christ, and living a life that would glorify Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.